turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We'll continue on in verse 18 this morning, Matthew 1 verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18, this is God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Let's thank him for it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would open our eyes now that we might see wonderful things. Would you instruct our hearts? Would you help us grasp in new ways, deeper appreciation, that all that the coming of Jesus means for us? We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we considered the person of Jesus, the fact that he was born in history in the line of David, a son of his according to the genealogy that Matthew outlined in the opening of his gospel. We also talked about the fact that Matthew's intended audience, most agree that his intended audience was primarily Jewish people. And we can see why they would come to that conclusion as we move through the gospel because there is this emphasis that shows Jesus is the Messiah, that he wants his readers to see and understand that this is the promised one. And that genealogical foundation that we looked at last week laid the groundwork to see that this is the one who came according to the promise in the line of David, because David had been promised a throne that would last forever. And so far, that son had not come. But the promise of the Messiah was much more than simply that one would come in the line of David. The promise involved numerous prophecies which were fulfilled in the birth and the life of Jesus. And the first promise or prophecy that we see in Matthew's gospel is the one that we look at in the text today. Now we're going to see others in the coming weeks. We'll see prophecies from Micah from Hosea, and from Jeremiah. And when you see these, uh, as you read through the gospel account, you can begin to get the gist that Matthew's making a point by this. He's picking different prophecies from different prophets to show that he's not cherry-picking, that this was here all along. This is the promised Messiah. We've We've been told ahead of time that this was going to happen, and now it is happening or had happened when he recorded that. It's true, but of course the waiting seem to take forever. And we understand this because none of us like waiting. It's a painful process, be it for children or for adults. We're not much better than children uh, when it comes to waiting. And if you think about it, generation after generation had come and gone, and the people of God had been through many things, some great and wonderful and some terrible. 
But as sure as any promise of God is, the Messiah did come. And now Matthew records that gospel account in a way that points his readers to see that the promises were fulfilled. Many of us prefer Luke's gospel account. I like Luke's gospel account. I think both for the details that Luke includes, as well as the prose. You know, we're kind of familiar with Luke's gospel account. If you read it as a family on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, or when we come together, we always read uh, at Christmas Eve service, we read the, 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 the gospel account from Luke. That's the more familiar one. Matthew's not so much. Matthew's accomplishing something different. And he's giving us, though, some helpful insight into what took place in the birth of Christ, including who Jesus' father was. Now, Jesus' father was through adoption. It wasn't an earthly father, and Matthew makes that very clear, as if there's uh, if any room for, for, for not understanding Matthew. He makes the point very clear in his record here. Now, we don't know a lot about Joseph. We know that he was a carpenter, a man that worked with his hands, a job that, although labor, filled with labor, uh, is a job that brings deep satisfaction. Anyone who uh, makes things, crafts things, knows the satisfaction uh, from making things well. Um, I'm one who cannot do those. I, I can't make anything. Like, I break stuff. That's what I do. So I really admire people who are able to take things and craft things well. And so there's a deep satisfaction in being able to do that. This is the home that Jesus grew up in. We also see that Joseph is called a just man or a righteous man. Uh, And we see him act this way toward Mary, not just righteously, but with mercy and with kindness. A lot of times we kind of oppose those two things, uh, mercy and righteousness. We kind of treat uh, those two things as opposites. They're not. Clearly, if you look in Scripture, mercy and righteousness or justice are together. They go together. They fit together uh, as God intends them. And so Joseph is a great example of this because he wanted to do what was right, but he also wanted to do it in a way that didn't harm Mary. Additionally, we see that Joseph responded in obedience. And we might take this for granted as we read. This is a very short account. It's very concise. If you read it quickly, you can miss some of these things. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Consider his situation. No matter what Mary told you, the evidence points to something else. She had been unfaithful. And then to top all of that off, an angel comes. And sure, there's, I mean, who's not going to believe an angel, this miraculous event? But I wonder how easy it made it for Joseph. I think this is still a demonstration of both his faith and God's grace in his life to protect and preserve Joseph as the father of, of, of Jesus, the adopted father of Jesus, to preserve this situation. And it's not just here in the beginning. We're going to continue to see this later as Jesus was young in the weeks to come. So with all of this keeping in mind, let's look in verse 18. And we see there that Matthew provides a statement of introduction. Seems straightforward enough in English, but there's more than meets the eye here, as you might guess. The word translated in our English Bibles as birth, this is the birth of Jesus, the account of the birth of Jesus, is actually the Greek word genesis, where we get our word genesis. It is the word of beginnings. 
And so just as the book of Genesis begins and opens the Old Testament with the origin story of the, of the creation and history of our world, now the New Testament opens with the origin of the new creation that is coming, that is inaugurated in Christ bringing his kingdom to earth. And so the story of Jesus is a story of beginnings. Something new has begun. We could say Jesus changes everything, and indeed he does. We will see that the work, though, is not the work of humans. It is clearly the work of God, doing things that are humanly impossible, a virgin conception, uh, to mention just one, to show that this is all the work of God. It is a divinely empowered origin story. Now, Matthew describes that Joseph and Mary had come together in betrothal. They were betrothed to each other. And we might make the mistake of thinking this is like our engagement. It's similar in some ways to our engagement, but it's also different because it is legally more like a marriage. In the culture and time of Jesus, parents often arranged marriages. Think about that, young people. How would you like for your parents to arrange your marriage? Uh, and if the parents didn't, they would often employ a matchmaker. And cue my Fiddler on the Roof reference here. I won't, uh, but you know, I, I can't resist Fiddler on the Roof. But if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, and you'll be singing that song the rest of the service in your head. Uh, but, but either way, however this marriage was arranged, it was a promise in a sense that the two children, it was often done when they were children, they were promised to each other, but it wasn't legal at that point, and it could be broken fairly easily. That was more like our engagement, except the fact that the kids really didn't have any say. However, at the time of betrothal, the two young people did have a say, and that was kind of the point of betrothal. They would come together in agreement to marry one another, and they would do so before witnesses. That's what gave it its legal weight. And during this time, or after this time, they would be called husband and wife. So that's why we see the language used in both gospel accounts of husband and wife, even though they're not married yet and the marriage hasn't been consummated. That would take place later. During the betrothal, the dowry would be arranged and other arrangements that were ta- that would take place in this time and culture and yet the two would continue to live separately in this interval known as betrothal. When the time for the wedding came, and again, fiddler on the roof, you remember the marriage procession, right? The parade, that's what would take place. The groom would go with his men, his family, his, his, his friends, would go to the, the wife's parents' home where she lived, and they would go as a procession, uh, a parade, to the marriage feast. It was this public declaration, and it was there that they would uh, take their vows and that this would be formally a marriage, and after that, they would consummate and live together. So Mary and Joseph then are in this betrothal period. It's before the marriage feast has taken place. They are not yet living together. So you can then understand why Joseph would be surprised that his wife uh, was found to be with child. Now, as the readers, when we read this, and of course it's a story we know well, we already know the answer, but again, we need to put ourselves back in Joseph's shoes. Initially, he didn't know the answer. He wasn't told right away. We see that in the fact that he was pondering things in his own heart. He was making decisions without all of the information. He didn't know exactly, even if Mary had told him, and you can imagine how that would have gone down, uh, 
seriously? You know, how would, how, would, how would he have been able to believe such a story? Matthew tells us that as he considered these things, so there was a period of time that he was thinking about these things, he, and Matthew says he resolved to. So he already decided in his mind how he was going to handle these things. So there was this period of time before the angel came to explain all of this in which Joseph decided to divorce Mary quietly. And yes, divorce is the correct term. Divorce was the term used legally uh, during the time of betrothal because under the at this time that that was how it was seen. It was already uh, uh, legally arranged. Now he had two options. He could have done it very publicly, and this would have been to save his own face, let all the shame fall on Mary. He's innocent. Make a public spectacle of it and divorce her in that way, or, and as he did, he could divorce her quietly showing mercy. In a sense, he could take some of the hit for anyone who heard or found out or uh, discovered the rumor or however these things went around a small town as they do. And Joseph opted for the latter. He took the hit, so to speak. He was merciful. He handled things in a way that protected Mary. Even if Mary had explained everything multiple times, and I imagine she did, and that she tried you can still understand why Joseph would have had a very difficult time with this and how it would have been a real struggle. And so the text tells us that he resolved, he decided in his mind, I'm going to divorce her quietly. But he never got a chance to because an angel came in a dream and said to him exactly what had happened. Basically everything we can assume Mary told him uh, that, that had gone on. Explained all this to him. And this is a good reminder to us. You know, sometimes we move and make decisions and, and go in a certain direction with a clear conscience, believing it's the right thing to do and the right way to do it. And then God alters our path. And it's a surprise. And all of a sudden things are turned around. We contemplate, we resolve, we make decisions much like Matthew did before the Lord kind of jerks a knot in our chain and turns us and moves us in a different direction. Now, you might think, (laughs) yeah, God sent an angel to Joseph. You know, please curse me with the same thing. Send me an angel so I know exactly what to do. And I get that. I would love to have exact instruction of what to do in each and every decision that I make. But God has spoken to us through His Word. And although it doesn't tell us how to make every decision, listen, it does tell us something very important about every decision that we make. God's Word tells us that God remains sovereign over all of our decisions. In other words, you and I cannot mess things up so badly as to thwart God's plans. What a comfort that is. What a freedom that gives us to know that God is sovereign even over our decisions. No matter what we do, He will accomplish all of His purposes through our lives, even in spite of our decisions. Now, in Joseph's case, he intervenes, I think, in this miraculous way because he's bringing about the most significant event in history. And the angel comes to him and tells him in a dream, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Note that Joseph here is called a son of David. 
Again, Matthew's intentional here. Matthew's showing that the line comes through the father and the angel's addressing Joseph here for his readers to know that this heir would be a son of David. And yes, that came in this time under this culture, even through adoption, the line came through the father. The legal right of an heir came through that line. And so this um, shows that, that Jesus came in the line of David. Of course, we see that with Mary as well, depending on how you understand uh, Luke's genealogy. But Joseph here is, is, is first encouraged that, that, that God is near and with him. He has preserved him. He has used him. And he tells him, do not fear, which is what we often hear angels say when they show up. It tells us something about angels, that they're probably not the little cute cherubs in the, in the gift shops that we see on greeting cards because everyone is told, do not fear when they show up. That's a command that we're given as well throughout Scripture over and over. Do not fear. So as we're facing tough situations or difficult situations, we're told not to fear, but to walk according to God's Word so that we can make decisions in great freedom. And let me say that, that unless an angel shows up and tells you exactly what to do in a decision, commit your ways to the Lord and then know the freedom of making decisions and trusting Him with the results, that you cannot mess anything up beyond His saving work, that there's nothing you can do to pervert His plan. Trust Him and make decisions as you live according to His Word. There's great freedom in that. The angel instructs Joseph to take Mary as his wife, to move forward with the plans, to trust God that this is according to his plan, even though I still think Joseph had to be really confused in this moment. And then he gives the information that Joseph really needs to hear. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph need not worry about Mary's fidelity. God had worked something miraculous to bring this about. He then adds that a son will be born, tells Joseph to name him Jesus, and then he explains he will save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came, to save us from our sins. Note that he came to save his people, those who are his, the elect from eternity past. He came with intentionality. And note that he saves us from our sins. He doesn't just save us from sin in general. He does. That's true. He saves us from the effects of sins, but He saves us from our sins. Each and everything that you and I have done that is wrong, anything that we will ever do that is sinful, He has saved us from those sins. And so Advent, in this sense, is corporate, but Advent is also very personal, that each of us can know the relief of forgiveness for all that we've done wrong. Now, in verse 22, as the narrative goes on, there's some disagreement as to whether this is now Matthew speaking as a narrator or if this is the angel continuing. We'll go into that because it really doesn't change the meaning of anything that's said, whether it's the angel or Matthew. We're notified here that the birth of Jesus happened according to the prophecy that was given in Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When we go back to Isaiah and we look in the first 12 chapters, we see that the people of God are there described as hard-hearted and rebellious against God. They have forgotten His saving power. They have forgotten how He has delivered them and provided for them. So Isaiah is charged to bring this message of a call to repentance. 
And it's an announcement of judgment. Of course, any time repentance is called for, there's always that announcement of judgment. Repent so that you're not judged. This was the message. And guess who he takes the message to? King Ahaz was the king at the time. Now, you may remember I mentioned King Ahaz last week because he's in the genealogy of Christ. And if you remember when I mentioned King Ahaz last week, he was one of the wicked ones. He was a wicked man. He didn't trust God. He didn't follow God. This was who was leading Judah at the time of Isaiah's work as a prophet. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz, and he is given the opportunity to ask God for a sign. And instead of doing this, Ahaz doesn't really trust Yahweh. Instead, he's made an alliance with Assyria because that's where his hope is really found. And so instead of trusting God and doing what the prophet of God said, he kind of feigns this piety, and he says back to to, uh, Isaiah, um, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds pretty righteous, doesn't it? Except that the man of God had told him, ask for a sign. And so because he does not do this, Isaiah speaks back to him and says, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the context of this prophecy. A prophecy given in a time of coming judgment. A prophecy that was a call to repentance. The prophecy goes on to say that this boy that is promised, the son that is promised, would, before he knew right from wrong, Judah would be utterly decimated. It's a prophetic and poetic way of saying, in about two or three years, it's all going to go down. That was what Isaiah brought in the announcement. The ironic thing about this judgment is, guess who God uses to judge the people, his people, the people of Judah, Assyria, yeah, the one country, the one nation that Ahaz had built an alliance with, the one nation and army in whom Ahaz trusted, God sent him and his army to judge the people of Judah. Now, we're not told about whether a child was born in this time. It is likely a child was born, according to this prophecy, literally. In fact, the child was was probably not born miraculously, uh, because the Hebrew word here is can be translated virgin or young maiden. It can be either. It can be a, a woman of marriageable marriageable age, marriageable age, a, a young woman who's ready to be married. Um, and so the Hebrew word isn't specific. But as we've seen over and over in our study in Genesis and our study of Revelation, what often happens in prophecy is that there is an immediate literal fulfillment. And then when we zoom out and we get a high enough look at 30,000 feet, so to speak, we see that there is an ultimate fulfillment that comes later. And this is the case here, that that far-off thing is the consummate fulfillment. Now, Isaiah uses a word that can be translated as maiden or virgin, but Matthew, in interpreting Isaiah and quoting Isaiah, of course writing in Greek, uses the Greek word that can only mean virgin pointing to the miraculous nature of Christ's conception. It's not just centered on the use of the word, though. Matthew and Luke both make it clear in their accounts that Mary and Joseph had not come together in marriage. They had both remained chaste, that this was a work of the Holy Spirit, this was a work of God, this was indeed miraculous. 
Now the name given in the prophecy is the second name that Matthew points to, the first being Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And next he says he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins, and he has come to reveal God in the flesh. Jesus came to dwell among the people he created, to live as a human, yet without sin. And because he came as a human, and because he lived without sin, he is able to atone for us as the Lamb of God. Now Joseph goes on, and he does exactly what the angel instructs him to do. He obeys. And with that, the birth of Jesus is wrapped up by Matthew. That's all the details we get. There's no shepherds in the field. There's no inn. There's no room. There's no stable in animals or any of that. Jesus is born according to the promise. And with that, the story of his birth comes to an end. But the story of his youth continues, and we're going to continue to look at that in the coming weeks. Because Matthew's intent here isn't just to describe the birth story, but to show us here at the moment of birth, conception and birth, but also in in the years that follow, that there had been many prophecies foretold that Jesus would fulfill. And we will see those in the coming week. Now, you may ask yourself, what does this have to do with me in my life? What does a long-awaited prophecy being fulfilled? I mean, we know this. We've been through this. This isn't my first Advent season. Why does this matter? Well, an answer that's often given, and a good answer, is that it shows that it's true. God gives a specific promise, then he fulfills it in a way that only he could do. It explains away any human notion of chance. It helps us to see that there is purpose in redemptive history, that God is at work, that this isn't just a fairy tale. But there's more than just this, and I would argue it becomes very personal when we consider it. That God keeps his promises is really what our faith hangs on in every respect. We who are trusting in Christ are resting in Christ's finished work on our behalf based on the promise of the gospel. That the Father will receive us on the merit of Christ alone. That's a promise we're given. We're trusting that what Christ has done for us By that, the Father will receive us. And we can know that the promise is true, but it is a promise that we are waiting to see fulfilled. We are hoping in the reality of heaven, based on the promise that Jesus has said He is preparing a place for us, and that if He is preparing a place for us, He will come again to take us there that we might be forever with the Lord. We are trusting that these failing bodies will one day be restored and sin will be removed forever based on the promise of the resurrection when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We believe that all of our sadnesses and griefs will be wiped away along with our tears based on the promise that we see at the end of Revelation, that all sorrow will end and there will be No more sadness. Our faith is rooted in the promises so that we walk not by sight, but by faith, trusting in God. So that as we now look back and we see these promises fulfilled, that Jesus came in just the way that it was said, then we can look forward with confidence knowing that God fulfills all of His promises. No matter what we face in this life, His promises will stand. No fracture, no grief, no sin, no heartbreak, no cancer 
or illness, no failure or disappointment, no power, nothing present or anything to come. Nothing can separate us from the unending, unbreakable love of our promise-keeping God. Nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you deepen our confidence that you are the promise keeper, that you hold all things together and work all things together to accomplish your perfect will. As we look back and see the promises made, and we see how Christ fulfilled them, would you give us a deeper sense of confidence to know that all of the promises are true in him and will one day be ours in completeness, in fullness, without any exception. Lord, our, our hearts doubt. We struggle, especially when we face difficult things in this life. We wonder, do you really love us? Are you really there? Are you really at work? Lord, would you help us to see the beauty of your having kept these promises so that we can be assured to know that you will keep all of the promises yet unfulfilled. Keep our eyes on Jesus throughout this Advent season and may we rejoice that it indeed is a good thing that he has come to save us, his people, from our sins. We commit our ways to you in Jesus' name. Amen.